Okay, hello. It's your Chapo. It's me, Will Meneker. Joining me this week is Amber. Howdy. And Matt. Hello. But special guest sitting in, first time, long time caller, it's Brianna Joy Gray <laughs> of The Intercept. Brianna, how's it going? I'm doing well. It's so good to be here finally. Yes, it's uh, it's been too long, Brianna. Uh, so let's just let's just dive into the topic of the day. Uh, I don't want to spend the entire show on this, but it is at the forefront of everyone's mind right now. The vote on Brett Kavanaugh. I have not. I've been trying not to pay attention to this today, but can you can you give us an idea of where we stand in the vote count at the moment? Uh- well, right now it was the forty-nine to fifty-one um, vote on whether or not to um, uh, keep the conversation open today, which it was ended. And people are looking at that to see if that's reflecting where the votes are actually going to fall. Um, you know, Murkowski has given this interesting statement that says that she's pretty confident that Brett Kavanaugh is a good guy, but she's not going to vote for him because he might not be the right guy for this time which I think is pretty much the opposite of how I feel about it. I feel like he could not, cannot be more clear that he is not a good guy. Um, even if I cannot prove conclusively what he or did not did or did not do, you know, 36 years ago, but regardless, um, uh, that's hopeful and good. And so the pressures on Collins, um, Susan Collins to see if she is going to come through, there's been this campaign to raise money for any potential opponent of hers, um, a Democratic opponent of hers if she votes for Kavanaugh. So she's got that financial pressure at her back. Um, the campaign, I think, is at something like $1.8 million now. And she said, of course, that she thinks that's a bribe and is not too wild about this prospect. But, you know, hopefully, uh, the, the hope is anyway that she will consider this threat to her um, position in making her decision. But I don't know. I, I'm personally not in a very optimistic place. It's been a long week. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty much waiting to see what happens with everybody else. I mean, I'm not in an optimistic place, but mainly because I'm eventually just going to have to say Matt was right and I was wrong. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there was 20 bucks on this. Although I have to say, one of the worst things for me right now is that when I check my promotions email box, uh, I get, I'm getting so much stuff on on the Kavanaugh, you know, just fiasco. And the libs seem to be learning absolutely nothing from this. It's, I'm really, really troubled. Like I got one today from Planned Parenthood, God bless them. And they're driving out people from (laughs) New York, you know, to DC. And uh, they say like, we'll join a rally at noon to make it clear we won't stand by while the Senate tries to put an accused sexual abuser in the highest court of our nation. Now, to me, that is setting us up for a McCain effect. Like that is setting us up for getting another horrible ghoul of a person appointed and saying, well, no, 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 it's, it's one of these reasonable Republicans. They'll find the one Republican that didn't rape somebody or attempt to anyway, and they'll be like, <laughs> oh, thank God, everything's back to normal. I think the thing that you have to do with a situation like this is to be like, wow, it's almost like there's something endemically violent and horrifying about this level of power entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. they're really dropping the ball on it. Because what they're doing, everything is very reactive. There's no plan. I mean, there's no stra- stopped Kavanaugh is not a strategy. And, and, and even, even narrowly, like on the question of stopping Kavanaugh, when, what, during the uh, hearings, the clearly the only kind of agreed upon strategic move that the Democratic senators had was they were going to push for that FBI investigation, which anyone could have told you that day if they did do it, it would be very limited in scope. It would be it would be directed by guys like McConnell and Trump that it would not be in any way exhaustive. And it would be the perfect thing to provide a fig leaf of justification for every yeah. tottering person from Collins yeah. to Mansion to vote yes. Well, there was, there was an investigation. But there was an investigation. They, it turned up nothing, so it's fine. Exactly. And anyone could see that, but all they could think was, well, that'll give us a week. All they could think of was in the terms of just 
Just just give us a little more time. Hope basically just praying for a meteor to hit him in the fucking head between then and the, the release of the FBI thing. And that's the same deal. Is like on a broader that like even narrowly they don't think ahead. And then broadly they just focus on him, not realizing, okay, fine, they pull him tomorrow and then they put that psycho opus day lady, Barrett, whatever the hell her name is. Yeah, on. if only we can delay this long enough for the cirrhosis to do him in. Yeah. That's not a good plan. Yeah, like uh, they were hoping that they would uh, swap him out with uh, Joseph Coney Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that I mean their problem to not their inability to speak, you know, kind of, to think of uh, philosophically and prescriptively in the long term has been an ongoing issue. And you know, as a lawyer, I've been particularly frustrated with this idea that the Federalist Society kind of conceptually uh, and their candidates conceptually haven't been taken on. Um, more specifically, I mean, they're going to go back to the Federal Society bench. And the problem is so much bigger than partisanship, even. It's so much bigger than um, the idea that, that the Supreme Court has been politicized as though that's an, a novel thing. But there's this other thing that's happening within the whole broader legal community in which there has been too much credit, in my view, given to the idea that textualism or, original, or originalism as philosophies have any intellectual merit. You know, if it were, if it were up to me, a philosophy that says that we should um, invest in the the thinking of people who lived 200 years ago who were demonstrably, uh, demonstrably racist and sexist and misguided and just generally ignorant about, you know, everything that was going to happen over the next 200 odd years, you know, shouldn't be the, the guidepost for our current civilization. I mean, it's a kind of like um, creationism that's being held up and accepted by law schools as a legitimate form of, you know, intellectual practice. And the idea that we're even crediting that bench at all is kind of mind blowing to me. I mean, even leaving aside uh, the obvious problems with uh, the founding fathers, I think creationism is a good example because they've created this out of whole cloth and they will gladly abandon the idea of originalism and just invent things when it suits them. Matt, was, what was the example you used about Roberts? Yeah, Roberts. Uh, when he struck down the key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, he cited something called equal sovereignty relating to the states. When it, and that made it unfair for them to hold these southern states that had traditions of racial uh, uh, voting restrictions to different standards than ones that didn't. And that's not anywhere. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in any of the of the precedent, it's literally something he made up for that fucking uh, for that decision. Yeah. Just pulled it out of his asshole. Traditionalism is inherently a revisionist project because eventually you're going to run into a new problem and you have to pull something out of your ass. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, originalism is a, a hokum idea that is promoted by people who know it's bullshit. I mean, it, it's like, yeah, it, creationism is exactly the equivalent in in the sciences, but. You know, back to this idea about this FBI investigation. I mean, I think we can conclusively say now, as Matt pointed out, that the Democrats relying so heavily on the idea of the FBI bailing them out with this investigation was a strategically and tactically a disaster. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Do they think the fucking Fox Mulders and the fucking waiting to just go rogue? Like, they, like these guys aren't just fucking bureaucratic time servers who are going to do what their bosses tell them to do and interview who their bosses tell them to do, tell them to talk to. I think they're just still under the impression that there that there is an adult in the room somewhere and that they have their best interest at heart. Like fundamentally, they suffer from um, a lack of they don't understand power. They think there's such a thing as a non-political institution. They think a thing like the FBI is in any meaningful way nonpartisan right. or can't, isn't shaped by the political reality. I mean, just like the Supreme fucking court. Right, because they're technocrats. Yeah. And that's the thing is they're like, well, if we just create a, a, a clean machine, yeah. you, know, it, you know, they have the same attitude towards technology, like literal technology as well. They're like, as long as, as, long as the machines are clean, everything will be fine. Right. Nihilism is exactly the right word. You know, watching this, it's like, uh, you know, it's not fair. Brett Kavanaugh had to lose a toe. Who's the fucking nihilist now? <laughs> yeah, I think on some level they were just really hoping that the, the Trump tweet that said he wasn't going to hinder the FBI investigation in any way would, would give the FBI cover to actually go beyond what they were clearly being told not, you know, told to do, you know, the limits that were set, and that somehow we're going to get this internal rebellion. Um, when that very quickly and very clearly, uh, you know, came not to be the case. It, it strikes me as interesting that there's 
there's this attitude um, that somehow these facts are now unknowable or somehow secret just because the FBI haven't uncovered them. When journalists have been doing all of this investigative work that the FBI has dropped the ball on, and there are facts out there all over the place and witnesses all over the place who have been increasingly willing to, to call into radio shows and call into the news to, quote unquote, testify as to what they know. And, you know, Kavanaugh has been impeached on myriad um, lies that he told during the hearing. And yet there hasn't been this effort to kind of like pool everybody together, get all the witnesses together in front of a microphone or a podium and basically set out all the evidence in real time on cable TV that the, that the FBI neglected to put out there. I personally that would have an, an incredibly kind of coercive effect um, and really undermine the credibility of whatever's in that weird piece of paper that's in this room that all the senators keep getting filed by one by one to read, you know, that is the FBI report. You know, that's that's one way to kind of like manufacture transparency where the government isn't allowing it. And uh, broader than that, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, the Democrats, you know, they attack Kavanaugh with this very lawyerly and procedural model. And we're still hearing it now that like, uh, now everyone's biggest problem with Kavanaugh is that, oh, he was so partisan in the hearing and his temperament, which I guess is true. He was unfucking glued and, as I've said many times, almost certainly drunk in the hearing. He was shit-faced. Um, <laughs> however, but like this is just all a matter of like uh, mystifying both politics but also your own goddamn conscience and own two eyes. You know, like the, the obvious thing is just to say we saw two people testify we saw one person answer every question to the best of her abilities in a truthful manner and was not moved or shaken from her essential story once. And then we saw another guy lie, prevaricate, filibuster, and just lose his shit over and over and over again, lying about both things big and small. What more do you need to say? Or like, you know, just... Who are you going to fucking believe, the FBI or your own lying eyes? Like, it should be clear to anyone who watched that testimony who was, te- who was being truthful and who was desperately avoiding indicting himself. Yeah, I feel like the worst part is almost not the people who, who clearly know he's lying and are just, you know, trying to get their political agenda across. It's these people, and I know I need to get off Twitter, but it's these people on Twitter who seem to genuinely believe that Kavanaugh's anger is the anger of a man accused. And, you know, I can't sit here and say I know, obviously, for certain what happened. But to not even stop and consider for a moment that while anger is a conceivable response in certain circumstances, that combined with his, his, his prevaricating nonsense, it's so clearly an indicator of dishonesty. And that there are people out there with emotional intelligence that's so limited they are coming to a different conclusion and then like trying to fight you and your mentions about it. That's perhaps been the most exhausting part of this week. Yeah, but I don't think we're going to make any political advances on emotional intelligence. I think that train has left the station for Americans. <laughs> all of Kavanaugh's defenders in the media and on Capitol Hill have all but conceded he did at the very least not speak truthfully about his youthful behavior with regards to alcohol in particular. And, and then also, you know, the Devil's Triangle and his, you know, cryptic uh, yearbook page. I mean, sort of. But a lot of people are defending it. A lot of people say, well, the fact, that, the fact that he said, I sometimes have too many beers in his opening statement, they're crediting that and ignoring the fact that he refused to answer the question directly when questioned by senators. And they, a lot of maintaining that whatever definitions of devil's triangle are out there in the world, you know, that actually predated the Wikipedia entry that was drummed up as the hearings were going on, you know, that those, that those should be thrown out because we don't know what the specific regional school-based meaning of the slang was in his, in his group, regardless of the fact that several of his classmates have come out and said it is means a sex act, you know? And that's the thing, like, you know, you could probably get away with that being like, well, nobody really knows what one small clique of people in the D.C. area in the 1980s slang would mean, or you couldn't really ever prove conclusively that like, oh, if someone says, oh, I've never blacked out from drinking, like it would be hard to prove that. But it's not a matter of, you know, proving this in a court of law. This is just a matter of common sense. 
and again, like your own instinct and conscience about what's going on here. Yeah, look, you're preaching to the choir. I read, I've written, I think, three articles this week on Kavanaugh, all of which are heavily focused around this idea of how these legal standards are being misapplied and how, uh, you know, burdens of proof and, you know, preponderance of evidence standards and beyond reasonable doubt standards are all uh, legal terms. And the Republicans have very cleverly tried to shift um, the burdens here so that they closely mirror that of a criminal trial, because of course it makes the burdens much higher and a much easier case for Kavanaugh. But what we're doing here is not, of course, trying to prove conclusively that Kavanaugh did or didn't sexually assault Dr. Ford back in, you know, 1982. All we have to prove is that he doesn't have the temperament, that he doesn't have the judicial philosophy, that he doesn't have the commitment to truthfulness that is required of people sitting on the single highest uh, court in the land, and that was proven within about five minutes of his sputtering of third testimony. So, right, right, you're not going to be able to litigate something that he probably did in high school. What you are basically going into this with is the knowledge that he is a fucked up, hyper emotional, self righteous drunk, and you're trying to make him look as incompetent as he actually is, and I. I just don't think they knew what they were doing. I, it, it's, I've been incredibly unimpressed with the way, with the way like Democrats have handled this. I've been incredibly unimpressed with the way just kind of like liberal activist groups have handled this. You should be relentless. You should be like, yes, yeah, he probably did something completely awful, but just go straight to the fact that like this guy is a fucked up mess. Look at him. There's no way he can be in charge of anything important. Well, also, I mean, not even to look at him. Like, if, if they had taken the hearing seriously, um, you know, and anticipated that it was going to be treated and perceived as a trial, then for all, given all the prosecutors that were up there asking questions, you know, they should have anticipated um, or, or tried to think in advance of a of a trial type strategy. So they knew they were each going to only be allotted five minutes. And you know, Kavanaugh was smart in so far as he knew knew that if he just drew out his answers and, you know, equivocated enough that it would go on to the next person and the next person was probably not going to pick up that line of inquiry. If they had, they could have had it like a, a really spellbinding show of pressing him, pressing him, pressing him on one point. Let's say whether he blacked out, that's so material to whether or not we can credit his memory of the event. And instead of, you know, his little thing with, um, uh, you know, where he was like, uh, you know, do, do you drink? You know, you kept throwing that, that back at, uh, I've seen a couple of senators, you know, Klobuchar in the White House, you know, do, do you really drink? Klobuchar kind of let it go, um, you know, understandably, I understand it's an emotional matter why she did, but like the next senator in line should have picked it back up. And so yeah. it could be inescapable for the viewing public how unwilling he was to answer even the most simple questions and impeach him with what he's already said. He told you in his opening statement that sometimes he drinks too much. You know, and somebody did follow up and ask, well, what constitutes too much? And he gave that lame line about, I don't know, whatever the, the alcohol, um, blood alcohol level tester says. You know, that's, there's ample opportunities for follow-up. Okay, have you ever been tested? Has your blood alcohol level ever been tested? You know, have you, have you ever, you know, how are you able to tell that you drank too much, if not. And if so, what were the circumstances and were you actually arrested? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, yeah, like, there. also, like, if you're really familiar with uh, testing your blood alcohol level, that right there <laughs> might indicate that this has been a problem previously. No, but they should have been completely relentless. They were not relentless. I thought Felix had the best line where he's like, why didn't anyone say, have you had anything to drink today? Did you, yep. did you drink yesterday? <laughs> Are you and, drunk right now? And if he angrily denied it, which of course he would, you reply with, so I gather that this is how you act sober? Like yes. a fucking maniac? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like or, this is your, like, this is your maintain uh, behavior right now? <laughs> or make him blow into a fucking breathalyzer <laughs> on the floor of, in that hearing. That would have been, that would have made for real drama on TV. But, uh, Brianna, to your point about how, sort of legal standards for evidence are being intentionally confused here as to what's going on. Another big thing that I've noticed uh, through all of this and Kavanaugh's defenders, and once again, I thought Felix had the best line about this, is, you know, for these conservatives, as soon as any one of their friends gets in trouble with the law, they all become like prison abolitionists yeah. or, or Michelle Foucault or something. They all, they, all, they all become Derrida when you're talking about the past and truth, and they become Foucault when any of their friends get done for a crime. 
But like the, the line yeah. I hear, the line I hear over yeah. and over again from his defenders is, you know, you can't send a man to jail or ruin his, you know, good reputation and name based on just one person's testimony. Well, I'm sorry, but more often than not in criminal cases, it's the testimony of one police officer and nothing else that sends people to jail all the time. So if they're looking to fucking, uh, you know, do away with that, I say I, I'd welcome it, but very much they, they are not. And I mean, forgetting well, even, yeah. uh, forgetting even the question of due process in court, fucking Kavanaugh has ruled that the U.S. can fucking hold people indefinitely without trial. That's how committed yeah. he fucking is to pe- giving people d- due process. Part of what's really, really actually quite sick about that line of reasoning is that it used to be the case um, in a lot of jurisdictions that you couldn't convict usually a man of sexual assault just based solely on the testimony of the victim. Women weren't considered to be credible kind of a priori, um, and testimony had to be corroborated by someone else, which is part of why and it continues to be very difficult to, to convict um, people for sexual assault, but it was even more difficult in the past. And that's why to date, there are often jury instructions, which will uh, make it clear to the jury, if you find the complaining witness's testimony credible, you can convict based on that alone. You know, so, so the idea that they keep, keep kind of hearkening back to this regressive notion that, you know, we, we, and he said, she said, that just facially means that the, the, the he is off the hook is absurd. Not to mention our, our own, our own president's incredible hypocrisy on this. You know, I, I wrote an, I wrote an article a couple of days ago on Laquan McDonald, uh, the presumption of innocence and Donald Trump, because we all know how he famously 11 days after, um, uh, the assault of the jogger in, in Central and Central Park, um, took out, uh, spent $80,000 on four ads in all of New York's major newspapers after there had been very little investigation, certainly before there had been a trial, 11 days after the attack, calling for the execution of the five 14 to 16-year-old boys of color. Well, Brianna, um, that was a, it was a very, crime. Brianna, it was a very dangerous time to be a man in America back then. <laughs> Uh, Rihanna, do you remember? Do you remember what the headline of that ad was? Oh, bring back the death penalty! Bring back, bring back the back death penalty! Police. Yeah, bring back the death penalty. Not only that, since then, the Central Park Five now all being exonerated beyond any shadow of a doubt through you know DNA evidence of it was actually the East Side rapist who did the crime that they were put away for. Donald Trump still maintains that they're guilty because they were in the park. And what were they doing in the park, folks? I mean, for a guy that never leaves his apartment, being in the park <laughs> is actually, like, very damning evidence. Yeah. Walking around? What's going on, folks? <laughs> That's precious energy you're racing. Clearly, you're up to no good. <laughs> That's right. He has that theory of energy where you only have yes. a certain amount yes. of energy in your whole life. <laughs> so if you exercise, you're depleting the energy. It's finite. 100% believes in bodily humors. <laughs> he absolutely thinks that he's got, like, Icor... And yellow and black bile inside of him. <laughs> there is a bad miasma in the park, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Brianna, though, uh, I, you know, the, the, this whole, again, fiasco today, I, I think, reached its brutal and final denouement with Brett Kavanaugh himself writing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that says, I know I seem crazy, but I'm a fa-. The headline is, I'm an independent, unbiased judge. Right. Yeah. And he's, you know, I, I, I showed emotion, but I'm a father. I'm a son. And it just this weepy alky taking to the pages of the, the Wall Street Journal, again, to cover his ass on the fact that the thing that most people, most of the smart, serious people are really concerned about his testimony was not that he committed perjury or is almost certainly lying about committing a, sexu- a series of sexual assaults. It's that he didn't show judicial temperament and he was excessively partisan. That was the Benjamin Wittes argument. And he's finally is looking to do the last bit of ass covering in the pages of the Wall Street Journal to assure us all again that he is, you know, an independent, unbiased and very, you know, rational and emotionally centered human being. Yeah. If you have to write uh, an op-ed prior to your uh confirmation basically saying i'm a good boy i am i, I think that's pretty dispositive that you've already lost um the it, it level of the public trust and integrity that is required 
to hold this position. I mean, I really can't stress enough. I think there have been 113 Supreme Court justices in the history of this country. This is not a job that anybody should feel entitled to have. This is not a punishment for him. It's not a punishment for him to not get this position. He is already sitting on the most, uh, arguably the most prestigious, arguably the most powerful court, except for the Supreme Court right now. And to pretend like, um, you know, this is the, the bench is so shallow that Republicans have to go to him. Like even if we stick with the, the Federalist Society dregs, you know, the the idea that they are so committed to him, frankly, does nothing but um, highlight uh, how important he is, in particular, in um, Trump's own goals of of uh, keeping his head above water with the um, you know the indictments that might be coming his way soon. Quite frankly, I thought the Federalist Society missed a beat by not digging up uh, Vlad the Impaler, which, of course, sleeps in the basement of the Federalist Society, and putting him up because it's a lifetime appointment, and yeah, he can't die. Right. He can't die. That's so, And he's an independent, unbiased judge. <laughs> yeah. Look, yes. Was Did I show anger and emotion to the invading Turkish army? Yes. Did it at times I go too far and paled too many people? Yes. But I am a father, a son, a lover. Un- I have my love. An impaler. They, they invaded Wallachia. What was I supposed to do? I had to put them all on stage. I just want to read one paragraph from Brett's own words here in the pages of the Wall Street Journal today. I was very emotional last Thursday, more so than I have ever been. (laughs) I I might have been too emotional at times. I know that my tone was sharp, and I said a few things I should not have said. I hope everyone can understand that I was there as a son, husband, and dad. I testified with five people foremost in my mind. My mom, my dad, my wife, and most of all, my daughters. Uh... Christine Ford definitely not on his mind at all no. when he was tested. That was not in the forefront of his mind in the slightest. Uh, yeah, so there you go. He he's a person who is part of a family unit, and therefore, as we all know, could never have do, done anything bad or lied under yeah. oath. No father or yeah. or or husband has ever done a crime. <laughs> yeah, I I I, uh, I guess uh, Van Dyke. Uh, if someone if he had just known that that Laquan McDonald had parents somewhere, he might not have gunned him down uh, 15, 15 times uh, and killed him. Oh, by the way, has that verdict been announced yet today? It just was. Yeah, they got him. Yeah, convicted. Convicted? Yeah. Holy shit. Well, at least it's not all bad news today. Yeah. Yeah. The silver lining for sure. Brianna, I mean, I I, I think we're all on the same page about how this is probably going to shake out in that Kavanaugh is going to be appointed to the Supreme Court with a you know very very narrow vote. My guess is you know Manchin and Collins will probably vote yes. Although I mean it is very iffy. All it takes all it would take is two votes to scuttle it at this point. Collins but, right now is doing her spiel and she's talking about all the awful dark money that's gone to oppose. The okay, Kavanaugh all right. Nomination. So <laughs> she's going to be a yes, which means Manchin will be a yes. Okay, so I mean yeah, as, as much as I hate to say or think it. I mean, I think we all know where this is going. So I want to ask you now, and I know this is like kind of a tough question. I hate asking it, but like, where do we go from here? Like, like the people who oppose this nomination and understand what it, the ramifications it will have on American politics and culture. Like what's, what's the way forward? Like, is there anything constructive, any kind of constructive protest or dissent or just monkey wrenching that would be at all productive or like what just what are you, what are your thoughts about the future i guess so i've been thinking about this a lot because this has been a hard week and i've been you know i hit i hit a real uh, low point i think last night and i've been entertaining these kind of fantasies in my coworkers all day to day like okay what if all eight justices come out in front of the courthouse today and say not this guy <laughs> you know in like a you know entertaining these, these uh delusions but i think practically speaking i'm not i'm not past the perjury point um and you know i've been trying to start investigating case law and looking at actually what it will require and what lies would best um you know are most easily proven as perjury I think that even if you think it's unlikely to be successful, which again, I don't know that it's fair to say at this point, 
Um, I think that making the case and really establishing that the objection to Kavanaugh isn't just, I know, I mean, say just, but isn't solely about what he may have done, you know, 36 years ago, which is what the Republicans wanted to make it about. They, they want to make this about boyish indiscretions, et cetera. This is about what he did last week. This is about him lying under oath. This is about him not having the integrity to uphold our laws. And to really kind of drive that point home, I think might actually be helpful to Democrats going into midterms because it, it's, it's something that they don't usually do, which is to make a uh, an argument of principle that they stick to um, that has a, a, the possibility of kind of having a reverberation effect um, and to be able to, you know, basically use it as a vehicle to define what their own attitudes are um, to the world. But for years, Republicans have been able to claim as kind of a moral high ground. And the Trump administration and all of the brouhaha that he's brought with him um, has offered an opportunity for Democrats to make some more declarative, um, you know, prescriptive statements uh, that uh, could shift the dialogue to illustrating how the, the party platform extensively is able to provide a lot more and it'd be, it'd be a lot more ethical and have a lot more integrity than what the Republicans have with their tax cuts and their clear power grabs and, um, you know, choices to pursue whatever policy goals are just most beneficial to the upper class. And I think at that point, the class point really needs to be stressed by Democrats as well. I don't think turning this into an argument about, um, you know, you know, race or partisanship is as effective as pointing out that Trump basically defended Kavanaugh on the grounds that he went to Yale. He had a perfect life. This guy was, quote, destined, he said, to be in this position. You know, that's an argument for people in power and not the, the kind of hordes of Trump voters who are cheering on this nomination from their working class everyday lives. And I think that if Democrats are able to draw the contrast between what interests are actually being preserved here and the people who are actually voters on the ground who are not being served by either this appointment or the kinds of decisions that he's going to hand down from the bench, um, I think that that, again, can start to set up clear contrast going into the midterms. I would also, I mean, just to pivot from that, I would, in both the interest of, um, you know, considering things strategically long-term and just sort of in the interest of not losing faith, um, there's uh, an article from Jacobin from 2014 that it's old, but go back to it. It's more relevant now than it was then called Waiting for Scotus by Rob Hunter. And the deck is like, by fixating on the Supreme Court, liberals have inherited the framers' skepticism of popular sovereignty and mass politics. And I'm just going to read like one paragraph of it, which consolidates a lot of it. It's backed up by a lot of case study and stuff. But the basic thesis is... Um, Organizing large coalitions and confronting powerful institutions should be at the forefront of democratic politics, not judicial subtlety and clever interpretations of superannuated texts. Durable abortion rights are more likely to be secured through a broad coalition demanding universal access to single-payer health care than through appeals to protect the legacy of Roe. The reform of racist and violent policing through judicial interpretations of the Fourth Amendment is meaningless in the absence of the political will to, brief, to bring paramilitarized cops to heel. Confronting patterns of gross inequality with respect to gender and sexuality is a project best pursued through alliances, not through disputes over constitutional doctrine. And you yeah. just have to keep that shit in mind. Yeah, I think that's incredibly right. You know, I took a great class in law school with um, Professor Lani Guineer, Um And uh, she she often argued that there was this um, kind of a misplaced emphasis during the civil rights era in particular on legislative, or rather um, um, the Supreme Court, um, or not, and also like kind of lawyers leading the charge on some of the solutions uh, to the social ills at the time and how much more important it is for kind of the, the, the public interest to shift first. And, you know, there's a, there's an argument that that's part of why Roe v. Wade has become this national preoccupation in, in, in the years since it was decided that it was arguably um, it, it led public consensus rather than following it as most um, successful decisions did. And, you know, going back to the Federalist and the, their kind of hypocrisy, you know, they are constantly saying, well, just let the legislature do it. You know, let's just pass the laws. Let's do it by judicial fiat. 
fine. I'd like to see um, Democrats commit to, um, you know, coming up with more legislative solutions for a lot of these problems and then forcing them to reckon with the hypocrisy of these things going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court trying to shoot them down. You know, let's start to try to pick away as a, as a, as a pretext of what their actual project is and, you know, start delivering things like, you know, this, this, you know, vote no on 77 example here in D.C. You know, how are the people going to respond after you have, um, you know, the the people speak in favor of increasing wages for restaurant workers and then the lobbying struck down? You know, like there's I've been a little worried about the crisis of democracy stuff, um, but I think this week has been a a tipping point for me. And I think that we're going to have we're going to see some interesting things about uh, interesting changes in how we respect and interpret and our, our, our institutions, you know, the, the Supreme Court doesn't have uh, an arm for implementation. And that's always been a little bit of a, a funny bugaboo about it. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen if, if it's really true that people fundamentally start respecting the institution about as much as Kavanaugh respected it in his hearing last week. Well, I mean, another question about uh, the future, because obviously, as you mentioned, what's hanging over all of this is Roe v. Wade, which is, I think, like the most widely known one. But there's a ton of other, you know, equally important uh, Supreme Court decisions that we could expect to get from a now fully right wing Supreme Court. I fully expect them to overturn Roe v. Wade as soon as they have the opportunity. So just... What will that look like practically in an America, like in a post-Roe America? Because I know like people say, well, it just it gets kicked back to the states. Many of these states, abortion is already functionally, if not illegal, then just unavailable. Right. Roe v. Wade was never a particularly sturdy basis for protecting women's reproductive health because they could always, yeah. through austerity, uh, attack women's access to not just abortion, but birth control, checkups, mm-hmm. the whole thing. So, I mean, will, will a post Roe v. Wade America just look like a more exaggerated version of where, you know, in very red states, those rights are now fully uh, rescinded. And then and then what is the political solution to that? In some states, you you're, you would basically go from having a situation where there's one functioning abortion clinic to zero. Like Mississippi yeah. I think only has one functioning abortion. Clinic. Uh, Missouri, I think I read as well. Yeah. So that, that's 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 how yeah. how far it's already been attacked at the state level, and it'll just it'll just ex- accelerate that. It's going to be weird when Ireland has more advanced reproductive oh rights God. than us. It's oh my gonna God! Oh my God! If Roberts and Kavanaugh, <laughs> we're going to have oh to stop. Dunk- it's going to be terrible. We're going to have to stop dunking on that I country. I can't make fun of the Irish anymore. <laughs> Jesus Christ! We're more backwater. We're we even more be living ba- in a bog. <laughs> we're even more backwater than Ireland in the fifties. Fuck me! But honestly, if Kavanaugh and Roberts and those guys are smart. They won't. They won't overturn Roe. They will not officially overturn Roe versus Wade. They will just continue the post Casey uh, 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 consensus of just slowly allowing states to basically make any sort of restriction, saying that doesn't violate the standard. So that you just find every everything like, well, what if because they don't even a lot of these places have, have basically uh, made it impossible to get abortions just through like building code shit, like like making requirements on uh, clinics in terms of like admitting privileges for doctors and and like the facilities that are. Un- yeah, where is Matt Iglesias with his anti-regulation <laughs> shit on this? He cares about food carts and not abortion clinics. Yeah. But like they they could just keep that going, and then they never get that because I think I think if they're smart, they are aware that that could be a real galvanizing moment if you actually overturn Roe versus Wade. That could like create a real Yeah, know, the backlash situation. would be Yeah, exactly. it's much easier to sneak it through the back door. Right. But I mean either way, abortion access is gonna be radically curtailed. Yeah, I mean what I would like to see if there's any silver lining on this, is a lot more commitment to the Democrats pursuing more of a 50-state solution. I mean, we had a lot of conversation, you know, after the last election about whether the Southwest is going to be the new Midwest, right? Like, the fact that there are growing Latino populations in these states and, you know, closer elections in states that used to be traditionally red has led to a lot of interest in places like the Southwest, but places like the Southeast, um, let's say Mississippi, where there's two um, Senate seats up for grabs, <laughs> this fall that I've heard very little conversation about. 
um, and which also happens to be the blackest state in the union, with something like 38% of the population being African American. You know, in a state like that, where, you know, Bernie noticed uh, this April when he traveled there, uh, you'd only have to get 12 or 15% of the white population to vote for you to actually win the state. You know, why is it that no Democratic money is spent there? Why is it that there's no attention being paid there? And I would like it to be the case that if suddenly um, the pressures that these states are already under, um, because they're being uh, run by Republican legislatures, um, if it becomes even more acute, I would hope that given that, you know, once you can't rely on kind of federal protections, Supreme Court protections, um, that perhaps the party would make more of a commitment to helping the people in those those states. Um, instead of writing them off as kind of Trump country. Yeah, no, I, I want to go back now to something you said earlier about how the Democrats are, you know, once again, blowing it by refusing to make a kind of class connection with this nomination and the politics that it represents. I mm-hmm. saw just the other day a headline where, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson on the 1488 report on Fox News said the attacks on Kavanaugh are an, are an attack on America's working class by <laughs> cultural and political. Ah, uh, yes. Well, he, yes. Is, he is horny handed. Now, again, I don't know the context of that. I absolutely will not watch the clip or read any of the transcript. I don't particularly care to find out what he's talking about. But... I mean that that is kind of like the 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 line that the right takes is that you know cultural elites are spitting on the working class and their sons by you know believing every you know crazy woman who you know comes out of the woodwork with an allegation about what may or may not have happened 30 years ago or whatever but okay so like assuming that the democrats are continue to blow class politics this is something you've written about you know it's it, it's again maybe the subject we return to over and over again on the show that's almost as, you know, uh, soul destroying and mind numbing as Supreme Court nominations. But <laughs> how does like how does one use the term working class in contemporary politics without pissing someone off? Or is that impossible? You know, I, I do think about this a lot and I and I talk about this a lot. And part of what's so frustrating is that it's obvious that the Democrats need to talk more about the working class. But the Democrats have decided that working class is a dog whistle. And not on their own, obviously. It's because Republicans have manipulated it and cast it in that way. But instead of pushing back and making it clear that working class is a class category and not a racial category, they continue to play this game where um, working class is implicitly followed by the word white. And when we're talking about, um, you know, Blacks and Hispanics, it's in racial terms and not because they have any kind of broader class project. And you're only speaking to our interests as people who are discriminated against and only speaking to um, class only through the the lens of this disparity discourse, right? Um, Which is fine, but it limits the political project significantly um, and basically cordons off um, the populace into Trump voters. And and brown people and ignores the fact that most of America isn't brown, um, and you get this kind of like obsessive um, focus on demographic changes and this kind of like um, hopefulness about um, you know the, the growing Latino population that kind of craven, frankly, and ignoring the underlying interests and needs in all of those diverse communities, which in large part overlap with the needs of quote-unquote, working-class whites. Um, so I, what's clear is that if, if a white politician stands up and says working-class, even if they mean everyone, it's perceived to be white working-class. And we saw this when um, Thomas Frank put out an article in The Guardian a couple of months ago that got, like, torn up on Twitter because the title of it has something to do with how the Democratic Party needs to work out to reach out to the working-class. Not once in this article does he say the word white. Not once. It makes no, he doesn't say white, Caucasian, or any other uh, or appetite you want to come up with. Um, but all of these interlocutors on, on, on uh, Twitter were talking about how he was a racist and how the Democratic Party needs to like, let this population go. Why are they all so focused on them, and et cetera, et cetera. Economic anxiety isn't real, yada, yada, yada. So the way around this is, to me, it seems to me to caveat it and say working class of all colors, every time you say the word working class, at least until we, we get people's minds right to that 
it's a natural assumption. And also, I think it takes a lot of um, politicians of color to go ahead and talk about the working class because there is, um, there, they have, you know, they're seen with as having offered that in good faith. The I mean, same bad faith arguments are, are offered against them. You know, I, obviously, like I said, there's a lot of like intentional mystification going on here. And maybe, maybe this is a dumb question. Maybe this is like too basic, but like what actually is the definition of belonging to the working class in America? That is stupid. Uh, How dare you (laughs) get your shit together, man. (laughs) I mean, I I mean, honestly, because like, I mean, the, the way it's used, it usually means cultural, cultural or racial signifiers where like if you're a boat dealership owner who drives a $100,000 yeah. uh, pickup truck. And now, I think the- we need to actually just get back to a relatively, at least loosely Marxist understanding where it's like you work for a wage, you're not nobody's boss, but you got a boss, you're working class. That's most people. I- yeah. It's not podcasters. Right. <laughs> We're artisans. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah. uh, broadly speaking, no matter who you are or what, or what about what, or what you make, if you have a boss and you're paid a salary, you're the working, you are a member of the working class. If you're not anybody else's boss, I, I think that's a, that's a fair enough. I think that's the most functional definition and the briefest definition we can use. Obviously like the, the economy now has like, all I mean, for a while, people were extremely into this idea of the precariat, which I think overstated a problem. First of all, anyone working for a wage has always had precarious employment, precarious employment, even if they were in a union. Unions have always been under attack throughout American history. Um, and so there's this kind of idea that, oh, there's a, there's a new type of worker. And it's like, no, there are fewer protections and workers are more disposable, but it's just an, exacer- it's just an exacerbation of a previously existing um, you know, condition, which is that if you, if you aren't your own boss or, you know, you, especially if you're like not in a managerial position, like you're not safe. What I mean, but like, and I'm I'm just anticipating how people will react to this. What if you have a boss, you make a wage, even a good one, but you also like own property or invest some of your money? Well, well, can we clarify what wage means? Because I think that we're using wage and salary interchangeably. But my understanding is, you know, when we're talking about a wage, we're talking about an hourly employment, not a set amount based on a okay. you know, right? Yeah, that yeah, every that's... year because it's a salary. And I think that most people who earn an hourly wage you know, aren't going to be, don't, you know, aren't, aren't people's bosses or, you know, at least not a lot of people's bosses, you know, and, and, and a lot of these other kind of caveats you're describing wouldn't necessarily come into play typically. Right. You know? And we've also done this amazing thing under sort of the neoliberal economy where we've um, created kind of a, a, like an artificial fabric of managers who are like, say, maybe if, like if you're a manager at a Starbucks, it doesn't mean you're management. It means you're running the shift that that six hour period. It's not actually right. management. So it's just like working class describes the vast majority of people in the country. And if you're talking about working class politics, you're talking about, I would assume, a range of policies designed to uh ameliorate the effects of what working a job for probably too little money does to you over time. Right. I mean, people talk about income too, and that is something, I think when you get to the point where you make money that makes money, yeah, okay, maybe you're outside of the working class there. If your money makes money, you're not working class. Um, But most people aren't like that. Most people have a job. Most people could be fired at any given moment. They have no security. Most people don't make enough. Like that's or like, that. Or that also that most people all, I mean, even if they're okay at the moment are one big thing away right. from being in the fucking shit. Right. Like, or, or like, maybe just yeah. two or, or, or like, or just even something simpler. Like let's say a relative dies and they lived on the other side of the country. Like you wouldn't be able to either pay for the plane ticket or get the time off work to right. attend their funeral. Right. Something right, right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. 40% of Americans can't cover a $400 emergency expense. That's where we are. So this idea that, you know, defining the upper limit of working class is, is, is less the issue than kind of, I think, bringing in 
and focus resources in the conversation about the, lo- the lower end of the working class and the fact that, you know, working class is able to, I think, bring into the conversation some of the people who feel kind of shut out of the term middle class, which is it's what Democrats have been using as their stopgap right. for the last few decades. You know, and, in ra- and middle class, everyone wants to be middle class, but using that word erases the kind of the inherent struggle in not being at a place where your money can make money. And in that same time period, the Democrats have ceased to even pretend to be anything like a working class or, you know, labor party in, I guess, a European context, Amber. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Like a European. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because of that, like, okay, so that, but, but yet they are basically the, the only option we have because the other party is just so openly and rapaciously dedicated to just wringing every last ounce of blood. Well, and, and because Democrats have always put more effort into fighting the left than fighting the right. Yeah. And well, and what we're <laughs> seeing now is one of the tactics to fight the left on now more increasingly popular and organized demands for things like single payer health care or. Right free college education is this idea that, uh, you know, that these things are, if not overtly, then sort of covertly racist because they do not address the immediate concerns of uh, black and brown people in this country, or they're putting the interests of white people first. Well, and it's a means of rallying what the actual base of the Democratic Party is, which is sort of liberal-minded, what we would call middle-class people who desperately want to seem like good people. So they see politics as kind of a moral mission. Um, so they're v- it's very easy to make those people insecure because they'll be like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to be racist. I'm very concerned about um, you know, sexism. I, 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 I don't want to seem like I'm ignoring those those projects. And for like elite liberals, it's very easy to manipulate a, a morally insecure person. Yeah, absolutely. So like yeah. this, this has been my preoccupation for about a year now, and I finally got my thoughts down in this this piece from late August called "Beware the Race Reductionists and the Intercept." And and the just here is to kind of drill down on this um, pattern of characterizing every policy that is like quote unquote universal and therefore has benefits to low income whites in addition to low income everybody else, disproportionately people of color, um, the impulse to characterize it as somehow a capitulation to white interests or somehow throwing people of color under the bus or undermining the interests of people of color. Because what has happened is there has been this, I feel like an intentional effort to cleave um, people of color and our interests from the interests of every other like poor and working class people as though they are 100% distinct. And of course, there are distinct interests that don't affect low-income whites. Racism is a separate ill that needs to be addressed at times with specific and independent programs. But the idea that the problem of racism, the primary problem of racism, the way that it manifests in the majority, not all, but a majority of cases is through these economic effects. So you end up going round and round with people and having the same conversations on the internet where you'll say, well, of course, low-income housing is, you know, of course, let's say, you know, affirmative action or, um, you know, um, you know, Black Lives Matter are incredibly, are incredibly important programs. But what is the effect of racism? Well, I can't get housing. If I'm rich, I can get around that. I personally have no problem getting housing because I am a middle-class person, like an upper middle-class person with a lot of elite elite status, right? It doesn't matter that I'm black. Um, But these things work together. Um, And the idea that that ameliorating the effects of racism, um, you know, poor education has to do with having low income and not being able to be in a school district um, that is able to serve your kids, being in a high crime neighborhood. I mean, Zed Jelani at The Intercept did this article where he looked at the, the, the income, the average income of the neighborhoods where police shootings happen. You know, 0% of them happen in, in neighborhoods where the average income was over $200,000 a, a year. 95% happen in neighborhoods where the average income was under 
$6,000 a year. So this idea that you can take the economic implications outside of what the racial implications are and deal with those problems separately is not only wrongheaded, it's completely the opposite of what the purpose of intersectionality, a buzzword that Hillary Clinton and the like love to talk about, is the complete opposite of what that's actually supposed to mean. But that has become the project of the democratic establishment because it is much, much easier for them and at much less a consequence to their financial corporate interests to be able to talk about race over separately um, without having to address the underlying economic concerns. And that's, I think that's what, where, we are, where we are today and why in 2020 what you're going to see whenever there's a leftist candidate who isn't a person of color, like Bernie Sanders, what you're going to see is a full-pronged identity-based um, attack because the, the threat of these universal programs to the economic bottom line um, means that you're going to get people like, um, you know, p- people of color making absurd arguments, you know, not just people of color, but everybody, and then basically weaponized, making absurd arguments about how not only, you know, if you can't make a moral argument against universal health care, you're going to argue that it's racist. If you can't make a moral argument against um, universal um, or free college, uh, debt-free or free college, um, tuition-free college, um, you're going to say that it's racist. If you're, if you can't make a moral argument against uh, solar panels, you're going to argue that it's racist and people already have. Uh, and I quote all these examples in my, in, in my piece. People have argued that solar panels are racist. Oh yeah, uh, there was a write-up. There was an article on the Intercept about it. Well, they people have argued that net neutrality. They ref, they reflect is, uh, light, right? So they could racist. they could sunburn white people. So maybe they're yeah, maybe they're racist against white people. Yeah, I mean, when you're in this position, too, it's it's we are so used to this argument at this point because I think a lot of liberals have been very deft with it that we almost get painted into a corner and we forget our ability to just scoff at it. And like the response is obviously like, okay, which of like, you know, the major social democratic reforms, like the one at the four being like, you know, Medicare for all or whatever, but like, let's say other things like housing or childcare or, or, you know, um, higher education, which one of those would not greatly benefit women and people of color and immigrants and the elderly and every every demographic of people that experiences like an outsized degree of oppression in society? And they can't name one. Yeah, I mean, well, the, well, the argument, what they say is, but what about, um, this is what I get a lot. What about Henry Louis Gates Jr., right? He was arrested even though he's wealthy. So they bring up examples of wealthy of wealthy people of color who have legitimately experienced racism, of course. And they say, well, the fact of them being wealthy doesn't get rid of racism. So why do you think that 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 you know solving these economic issues will help anybody? And I say, well, Henry Louis Gates is alive, and Laquan McDonald is is dead. You know, like like yeah. there, there are there are you can't buy your way out of racism, but you can buy your way out of some of the effects of racism. Um, and given that people have this fatalistic, fatalistic attitude about race, there is this kind of um, tiny C code style um, framing of race in America as indelible, permanent. Um, you know, our, not only is it the story of our country's formation, but it is the um, necessary <laughs> Um, future, you know, in perpetuity, if that's your attitude, then it, it, it boggles my mind how you can believe that by curing racism, we're going to solve things or that we have to somehow cure racism before, first, before we can address some of these broader economic problems. Basically, if you think that racism is as permanent and indelible as you say, then it is morally incumbent on you to start addressing some of the effects of it um, now, immediately, exigently. So, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think like the, the probably the, the clearest expression of this was during the campaign when Hillary Clinton said, you know, breaking up the big banks right, won't, won't right. solve racism. So, like, right. let, let, let's take that statement. Oh, let's take that God, statement. I ground my teeth into powder that day. I remember <laughs> I remember that so well. It took a year off my life. <laughs> Yeah, I rarely write a story. Like I, I, at one point, my editor at Current Affairs had to tell me, "Hey, look, 
can you not turn in something that has that quote in it? Because <laughs> I do think that's one of the most, most harmful things that came out of her campaign. She's been a campaign teaching Americans how to justify not doing the right thing and to, to justify using kind of racial equality as a faux cover. And to me, that's one of the most craven and despicable things I have a long list that, you know, that Hillary Clinton has ever done. But what, what I want to say is, like, let, let's take this premise at face value that, um, you know, breaking up two big fails of two big to fail banks or uh, instituting a program of universal health care won't actually end racism in America. The question that I never see asked or the follow up is what would a political agenda that ends racism or addresses racism look like? More people of color in tech. That's always the shit. And it's literally because that has kind of been, they have been asked those questions now. And literally they've become these psychotic techno utopians. These, they're, they're all Afrofuturists now. It's completely insane. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, um, Mm-hmm. Pharrell right. video or something like that's their vision of politics. But I'm now. like I'm not even I'm not even I'm not saying this as like I got you like that that it's impossible that any political program or policy could have you know a, a positive effect on the net amount of racism in this country. I'm just wondering what that agenda would look like. I know that's right, and I think that people you get a lot of sputtering responses. I've never heard a clear answer. Um, and I think that what people are responding to, though, in all fairness to them, is that they have a perception that there are policies in place that are aimed at closing disparities. I think that what, what they care about is, is that their understanding of the current political agenda is that the Democratic Party is out there trying to close the gaps between people, black and brown people in this country and white people. And that by sh- talking about kind of universal programs, what we're asking for is to end those efforts, whatever they may be. And so what I try to stress is that there's nothing that I'm arguing for that is in conflict with anything that's ongoing, which may or may not be working. But regardless, I'm not asking to undermine that in the least. All I'm saying is that there are even greater gains to be gotten by broadening the political project in a way that also happens to disproportionately help the people who are most in need. Now, what is most dispiriting to me is when I hear people say, well, I don't want to do that because it would incidentally help white people. They've been helped enough. And I don't want to get throw my, you know, throw, throw my support behind the political project, which incidentally helps a population that quote unquote doesn't deserve it. And that's where I think, and this isn't everybody, I'm not saying this is even predominant, but I've seen this thread markedly out there. And I find that to be troubling as a humanist. Um, yeah, that's just like morally repugnant. But the but the gap thing is also interesting because like you could theoretically close the gap by going in the other direction, couldn't you? I mean, you could. Well, yes, and that's that's what they want. They want a they want a world where you know there are at the same number of you know black CEOs um, as white CEOs, and there are the same number of white poor. Like they don't actually want substantive equality. They want capitalism and all of its ills and terrors that's just well distributed racially and they will admit to that people will say you know well you know i they had a chance to be millionaires why can't i be a millionaire too you know we saw this when barack obama got his um you know four hundred thousand dollars for that speech you know why can't he get his money every other white president has gotten that before and like i have a certain degree of empathy for you know it's not fair but it's the right thing to do, especially since it's going to disproportionately help the group that you purport to care about. Yeah. Also, I'm all for abolishing speaking fees that high like for anyone. <laughs> that would solve a lot of problems. If you want to pay someone that much uh, to hear them, you know, speak for 45 minutes about their bullshit presidential or, or, or political dynasty, um, you should go to jail. There. Problem solved. <laughs> Oh, yeah, my problem all that happened was like nobody. Yeah, I don't think anybody was left was really um, complaining about the fact that he got that like sixty million dollar book deal or what have you, because the book deal didn't implicate him politically or undermine his ability to be a political voice for people going forward the way that being paid all that money by a bank did. But that distinction, you know, kind of fell on deaf ears from people who think that, you know, they they, they see it as kind of pulling the ladder up behind. Um, behind rich white people, right? Like they've gotten to take advantage of, of all of these systems in the past. Now suddenly when there's some equity, uh, you know, our, we have an ability to, to get into that boardroom. Now all of a sudden they want full communism now and like that's not fair. 
Uh, last question, Brianna. Like, in, in your opinion, going forward to 2020, no matter who the candidate is, perhaps it may be Bernie again, who is the one that most speaks to a vision of, for lack of a better word, democratic socialist poli- politics in America. Is there any way they can anticipate or, I don't know, aver these attacks, or are they just going to have to deal with them or respond to them in kind? And if so, like, what is the most productive way to do that? I think that first, um, Bernie Sanders should acknowledge that a lot of these concerns are coming from um, a place of hurt, and that's not necessarily illegitimate, right? Like, there, there is something unfair that's happening. There is something unfair, for instance, about the reparations conversation not being taken as seriously as the conversation about um, uh, reparations for Japanese internment or the Holocaust or some of these other horrible things that have happened, right? Like, and even though I understand what Bernie says about it not being a viable political project, which is the same thing, by the way, that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama said when asked about reparations, like, I think that he needs to do more to credit where the frustration is coming from. Um, Because I think a lot of times people just want to be heard. I also think in terms of any, you know, presidential ambitions, it would be why, I mean, I've heard rumors and I think it would be wise, frankly, if he went ahead and declared a VP when he announced. Um, And if that VP were a woman of color, I think that would do wonders. Who that person should be, you know, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Brianna, are you trying to get a job on our podcast? (laughs) I am not. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that we can all imagine who, I mean, it's, it's yeah, not you, the longest you, list in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, if you think people think get mad at you longest. on Twitter now, Brianna. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be 35 in 2020. <laughs> oh, man. Jesus Christ. Uh, I, JK. <laughs> I, I will be 35 until 2020. <laughs> And then probably turns and then probably jump immediately to 75 after yeah. what that presidential campaign is going to do to us all. I think I'm skipping to the geriatric period. Uh, <laughs> Brianna Joy Gray of The Intercept, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, taking the time. That's my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, love to talk to you again. Uh, real quick before we uh, go today. I got a couple, got a couple, two shout outs and one standard plug. The standard plug, you already know, we're leaving tomorrow for Pittsburgh. We're on the road again, the Midwest. We're coming to your town. Chapotraphouse.com slash tour. Columbus. Tickets still available to see us with Columbus Legends, Brett and Brian. We would love to see you there. Two special shout outs. First, to. The special without Brett Davis. If you're not familiar with this program, it is a Manhattan public access show that Matt, Virgil, and myself were lucky enough to to be guests on this week. It was a very funny show. We had a really fun time doing it. Uh, So if you are in New York City and a fan of public access television, please do yourself a favor and check out The Special without Brett Davis. The Special without Brett Davis. Brett Davis. And finally, last but not least, I want to give a shout out to our special guest producer, Travis Morningstar of Last Podcast on the Left. He has filled in on a couple of these episodes seamlessly taking over from Chris Wade. I bet you haven't even noticed. Travis, thanks so much again. And if you're not familiar with Last Podcast on the Left, please do yourself a favor and check that out as well. Till next time, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. See you in Pittsburgh. Bye. Bye from your grave.